TED Audio Collective. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me and I'm here with Felix and be here. Hi guys. Hey. Hey. So how are you guys doing? You've been in the classroom a bunch, both of you, haven't you? Well, so as the one person who's not on a sabbatical, <laughs> can I just oh, say there's working. something called teaching? Yeah, you may be familiar with it. Yeah, so I started at HLS, which is always great fun. I started the tax law course. The law school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and okay. uh, which is always really, really fun. So the first couple of weeks, it's still... Is it know, really? It is really fun. <laughs> it, it is really fun. Just, it's just not something I'm used to. For those of us not on sabbatical, we... No, we I'm, doing some te- I'm teaching next week and with I'm, Felix. Yes. We're going... That's where are right. we going? We're going to Dubai. Oh, we're going to Dubai. Yes. So we're going to Dubai. So there. Uh, yeah, and we, we're we just we a the, bunch. the little people just stay in Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, I brought in a topic I want us to talk about. I want to talk about Medicare for all. It's Ooh. you can't open a newspaper these yes. days without yeah, yeah, Medicare for great all. Topic. Medicare great for topic. all. Yeah. And then I also thought there's so much happening in the news. We should just do quick takes on a whole bunch of stories. That sounds great. Okay. Okay, guys, Medicare for all. This has become one of the catchphrases of the current political season. A lot of confusion about what Medicare for all means. I think the Democrats have six or seven different (laughs) Medicare for all proposals on the table right now, and they're all somewhat different. But I think maybe the simplest and most extreme version of Medicare for all is the Bernie Sanders version, Mm -hmm. which is everybody goes on a single-payer, government-provided insurance program and we eliminate all private insurance. Now, the backdrop for this is this notion that the current healthcare system in the U.S. is really dysfunctional. And there are lots of signs of that dysfunction. One sign is how much more we pay for healthcare than the rest of the world. So we spend about 18% of our GDP on healthcare. And I think most developed countries, say in Europe, for example, will spend maybe 10 to 12% of their right. GDP. The second thing that's even more a critical issue is the fact that so many Americans remain uninsured. So 10% of the population, that's about 30 million people, Mm -hmm. which is much higher than other developed countries. And so Medicare for all, it would increase access. But the more extreme version of Medicare for all would require people giving up their private insurance. So what do you think of this idea? Let's just start there. Well, I think first, I think the tagline is helpful because it can mean anything to anybody, right? <laughs> which is a, which is what makes a good tagline. I think the larger problem for me is taking away employer-provided health insurance, which is, you know, a legacy of something that's been going on for 60 years. Not necessarily a natural way to do things, but it's working. 80% of people who have it like it. And I would rather see us address this problem in a more direct way. So if you think about Obamacare, mm-hmm. it was an expansion of Medicaid, and that was a huge part of its success, much more than the private exchanges. And so if we're worried about lower-income people, I'd rather see Medicaid expansions. That, to me, is a more targeted way to help the folks who need help 
And yeah. so I would much rather do this in a targeted way towards lower income types. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, accomplishes a lot of what we want to accomplish. So in a way, I like universal coverage. I'm not so much sure I like single payer. How about you, Felix? The idea that you would couple employment and health insurance is just an accident of history. I still remember when I first moved to the United States, it struck me as the craziest thing. <laughs> Why? Because the moment I lose my job, I lose my health insurance. Correlating these two things yeah. is just nonsensical. Right. What I personally think is a good thing about the current system is that it's competitive. Mm -hmm. But what I would like is if you just opened up the possibility for people to leave employer insurance right. mm -hmm. right. and then take Medicare at a point that I know that's always available for mm -hmm. me, that to me would preserve many of the things that I like. And to some extent, it would remain a competitive system where actually Medicare for all would have to work really well. And if it doesn't really work well, then people are not right. going to give up their private insurance. So both of you are arguing for a more moderate version of yes. this, where yes. we don't put everybody on Medicare. But anybody who wants to be on Medicare, anyone who's between jobs, anyone who's not happy with their employer-sponsored insurance could go on to Medicare. There are actually two things that are really driving this debate forward. One is we need to expand care to people who don't have it. The second is we need mechanisms to drive down the cost of health care. Right. Would this drive down the cost of health care? And is that necessarily the proper objective for a program like this? Frankly, I have never been concerned about spending X percent <laughs> of GDP. On, why should that be a metric? If there is a new procedure out there and it saves lives and it improves the quality of living, why should we, <laughs> why should we have something like, oh, X percent of GDP is the right number to spend on? That, I think, as a well, guidepost, but, but doesn't I think, really make But I think sense. the reason is because it's not leading to better outcomes and it's an artifact of third-party payers, so, which is, we, that's the argument at least, right? If you deconstruct where the costs are going. There are basically four places where the costs are going. The one everybody talks about is drug prices. We pay higher for drugs than others. Yeah. The second is we pay more for any kind of healthcare service. You have a surgery, you have some kind of procedure, you have a test. The third thing is we pay more for in salaries. So doctors make more money, nurses make more money, healthcare providers in general make more money in the United States. And the fourth is administrative. So there is a huge administrative cost associated with processing all these insurance claims and so on. If you think about drug prices, a lot of countries, particularly in Europe, for example, they negotiate prices at the government level. So there's some agency that goes in. And if you want to sell a drug in that particular country, you have to, number one, get approval. Right. And they have to determine that that additional incremental benefit associated with that drug is worth the price. And then they negotiate the price. Now, sometimes they say no. So, for example, Australia is an example. Over the last 10 years, 50% of cancer drugs that have tried to get approval in Australia have not gotten approval. Because even though they might have an incremental benefit, the price associated with that benefit, the government has deemed not worth it. In the U.S., we have a free-for-all system. If you can demonstrate that your drug is safe and that it is effective, even in the most incremental way, you can take it to market. Right. And so, you know, there are costs and benefits associated with that program. The other piece of this drug pricing puzzle is fundamentally the U.S. market has been subsidizing, you know, in effect, R&D for lots the of, of the rest of the world. Rest of the world. Yes. And so Absolutely. that's complicated and problematic as well. And so I'm very cautious about... I don't know. I, I think in a way, the American healthcare system, there's a lot to be proud of. <laughs> I think people forget that there's a lot to be proud of, which is levels of care for a big chunk of the population, especially people who are employer-provided health insurance, is actually pretty great. The level of innovation is actually pretty 
great. And so I understand why we want to change this, but yeah. I do, there's a sense in which I worry about throwing, you know, the baby out with the bathwater, which is, that's why I prefer this. Let's expand Medicaid. Let's opt in for Medicare. Then what's going to happen if you're, you know, Harvard or UPS or whoever? Well, wait a second. Why am I paying for yeah. employer-provided health care? So the interesting thing about the opt-in plans, the Medicare opt-in plans to me is it could just be a backdoor to the Sanders like Medicare for all. But oh, that's yeah, that's what I love about it because if in the end employer sponsored healthcare dies because it cannot persist in competition, that's of course totally okay, right? But We've had government initiatives that have unforeseen issues. <laughs> Remember right. yes, when we first exactly. rolled out ARCA? was horrible, right? Yeah. So who knows how well this thing right. is going to work oh. administratively. And so, That's interesting, the, yeah. so the notion that there's competition and if yeah. government doesn't do a good job rolling out Medicare for all, then people will look at it and say, am I crazy? The last thing that I want to do is like join this yeah. new. Yeah. So, so keep competition in the, this worries me the most about the Sanders proposal. The thing that I would add, and this is to pick up on your point, this notion that the U.S. healthcare system is completely broken, I actually have real yeah. issues with that. Yeah. Yeah. So the global pharmaceutical industry would look completely different if it weren't for the U.S. At the very beginning of the pipeline, the kind of innovation we would see in healthcare, I think, would really change if yeah. we were to take money out of the system. The second thing is the healthcare system in the U.S., you can call it too big, too costly, whatever it is, but it has been one of the most important drivers of job creation over the last 10 years. And so every time you pay money for a service, the costs that you are bearing, there's someone else's income. Yep. And so when we talk about let's remove a whole bunch of costs out of our system, what you're basically saying is we're going to dismantle this cost structure that we've built. And this cost structure in this country, these are people. A huge segment of the workforce is in healthcare in some form or another. Mm, yep. So the average Medicare patient pays half what a privately insured patient does for any given service on average. So imagine removing half the revenue of all hospitals. Every healthcare provider, it's, everything is in half. Imagine what that would do to our economy. I do think the healthcare industry, to some extent, has brought this upon themselves. The big pharma does engage in bad behavior. Yep. There's no oh, question yeah. no about question. it. Evergreen, Evergreen of, of drugs, drugs and all of those kinds of I mean, things. some yeah. of it is really gross. But that's a different issue than, oh, because we're spending more in healthcare, there's something dysfunctional yeah. about yeah. what's happening. Well, so the piece of this that I think is really interesting about what you said is currently we have private patients subsidizing Medicare patients mm -hmm. on average. Mm -hmm. The second thing about it is the notion that once we get to Medicare for all, you know, in the extreme version, that the government is going to be able to negotiate super hard and cut wages in that way. You know, you should you should look at the lobbying that goes on around Medicare reimbursement rates. And if you think that somehow under Medicare for all, we're going to have, you know, the government wielding a tough stick yeah. on expenses, I don't know if that's going to be the case. But how would you feel about, so, so many other countries have rules around if you cannot show an additional clinical benefit to a drug, that drug shouldn't be on the market. Would you be nervous about that? See, what I would like is I would like a sliding scale for the duration of patents. So not that you can't have it on the market, but rather if the improvement really is incremental, oh, that's interesting. then there's a much shorter patent yeah. for that. In other words, I think there are a lot of market mechanisms that we can yeah. begin to use to align the incentives better to eliminate yeah. some of this bad behavior. You know, I think the sliding scale on the patents is actually quite interesting. 
that might be a little complicated. But, but in have, general, I like I like that yeah. idea. And we have examples, right? Orphan drug laws, for yes. instance. Exactly. If, if you create a drug for a small group of patients, it comes with extra special, extra special cream on yeah. top. So yeah. there are countries like Canada and the UK, which we all know people in. And do you admire their systems? I do admire their systems, but I think their systems couldn't exist if it weren't for our system. I mean, Big Pharma wouldn't be so generous to Africa if it weren't for the United States. So we are subsidizing the rest of the world. Everything raises conflict in my mind. So, for example, if you look at the salaries we pay doctors and nurses in this country, they're just much higher than in other countries. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? We require a lot more training. It's a lot more expensive to get trained here. The standards are higher here. I mean, I don't know. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I find that conversation particularly interesting because when it's healthcare, we think, oh my God, they're making so much money and wouldn't be. And then if it's teaching, we say, oh, no wonder we can't get really fabulous exactly. teachers into the classroom because we basically don't pay so that fabulous. And so that logic that is so in the teaching case is so obvious that you need to attract really talented people. Of course, that's also true in the medical field. I'll say to your earlier point me here about what is it that we can admire about other systems. So one of the things that I think is really quite fabulous, growing up in Switzerland, the concern that whether or not you will get good quality healthcare was never on anyone's mind. That's amazing. And I have to say that peace of mind That is something that I would love for the U.S. to get to a place where we all have that. I think what's not right, and I think what animates some of the passions, I think, now in the Democratic Party and on the left, is that we are such a rich country. Mm. How is it possible that we don't have decent quality health care for everyone? That shouldn't be. I will say, though, that at the end of this, I would never kind of wish upon another country our fragmented system. Having said that, I don't know. Thinking hard about this Medicare for all problem made me appreciate it a little bit more. Yeah, <laughs> it no, made I me agree. feel like, what, well, wait a uh-huh. second, can we just expand yeah, these pieces true. of the That's puzzle right. yeah. right. and make it work the way it is, as opposed to, A, risking going 180 degrees. Yeah. And also there's something about choice. There's something about competition. Right. So I almost feel like the question is, do we want to throw up the board game right. into the air and just rearrange everything? Or do we just have to rearrange the pieces? The one final thing we can close on is... So the polling around Medicare for all, there is just overwhelming support for it, unless <laughs> unless you start <laughs> yeah. to mention what some of the trade-offs are. And then the support plummets. Yeah, It is one of those issues that is so sensitive to the wording of the question. And the minute people understand, oh, wait a minute, Medicare for all might mean something goes away, yeah. and then support plummets, which I think is really revealing as to how confusing some of these proposals are. Okay, guys, we're going to do quick takes. As you both know, we've been getting a lot of listener email, and it's been so fantastic. And just for our listeners, I want you to know that when you send us an email, at least one of us reads every email. We can't always respond, but we love it so much. And one of the challenges that we've encountered is that there are so many suggestions. Can you talk about this? Can you talk about that? And we simply don't have enough time. 
in the podcast to do it. So every so often what we're going to do is we're going to just rip a bunch of stories in the headlines and just run through them very, very quickly. So I brought in a couple. I hope you guys brought in a couple Absolutely. as well. We did. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we love our emails. We love the emails. And not just because they express gratitude, but they also are just filled with great ideas, yeah. which is fantastic. So yeah, we are all for more emails. And uh, of course, if you have the time, reviews oh, on we iTunes. We love people who write us reviews. It's so nice. If you've written us a review out there, thank you so much for doing it. Yeah. And thank you, Felix, for the 50 reviews. I think you were that responsible. I personally, <laughs> yes. They're all eight stars, of course. <laughs> okay, are you guys ready? Yeah. Okay, I'll go first. So remember that whole show and tell that Amazon made all those cities go through to choose <laughs> where their next headquarters are going to be? They finally decided they were going to have two, one in Virginia, Surprise. one in New York. Okay, now... They are threatening to move out of New York City because there's been quite a bit of organized pushback to Amazon coming into New York. What do you guys think of this story? The benefits mostly come in the form of jobs, right? Claims yeah. about mm -hmm. how many jobs they will create. And so here, I think we see sort of a turning point in the sense that, yeah, you get all these tech jobs, but what are you doing for the people who are already in the city? Yeah. And I think that's a harder question to answer. And as a result, you get much more pushback. What do you think, Mihir? So a couple of quick takes. The first is, I think it's massive amount of posturing on Amazon's part, which is they are super good at that. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it's posturing, which is meant to make sure that the deal goes through. The second thing is that I can't help but think this is self-defeating for New York, right? To question these things in the sense that their project in Queens actually has the potential to help and have a broader economic impact than what they would have done otherwise. And so I, I think it's completely self-defeating on New York's part. Yeah. My quick take is, if you were to ask me, is there a net benefit to Amazon being in a city? I would say 100%. I really think there's no ambiguity there. But I do think there are winners and losers. And what's interesting is whenever that happens, we say, yeah, but there's a net benefit. And as long as we take right. care of the losers, yeah, right, it'll be fine. Right. Yes. But the truth is, we almost never take care of the people who lose out. Yeah. We almost never do. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing here is people saying, look, we don't care if there's a net benefit. Actually, what's more important is that you take care of us today. Right. Mm -hmm. My other quick thing is New York will be fine regardless. <laughs> Amazon yes. will be fine. New York will be fine. Right. And know, actually, if this was a different city, it right. would be much a more much critical deal, yeah. to the future of the yeah. city. But in this right. case... And there wouldn't be much pushback, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. There'd I mean, be welcoming. Yeah. Okay, Felix, your turn. Uh, Mattel and Hasbro, the two big toy producers, both reported really disappointing sales. And interestingly, both companies blamed the bankruptcy, the of disappearance Toys of Toys R Us for the <laughs> decline in sales. Now, Which went bankrupt at the end of last year. Yes, yeah. And now I thought that in the age of the internet, the internet is going to make up for everything. So what's your sense? What is happening here? So I thought that was a really fascinating story because the toy industry depends on brick and mortar retail in a different way than other industries. There are two kinds of toys in a toy store. There are seek out toys like yes. Lego and things like mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. Barbie. Mm -hmm. And then there's stuff that's designed to get you to impulse buy. Exactly. In other words, there's just a lot of junk. Yeah. It's loud, messy, merchandised, in your face, in the aisles. And so if you look at the portfolio of Mattel and Hasbro, they have both. Yes. Mm -hmm. And once you lose physical retail, all the crap, excuse my language, <laughs> in your portfolio, you have no mechanism yes. to sell it anymore. Yeah, yeah. 
And so all you've got left are your branded yes. properties, the Barbies. Which the, did really well, which right? Which did very yeah. well. Exactly. Yeah. So I think what does it mean? It means that if you want to compete in the internet space, you have to take care of your brands. Like Barbie did really well. Yep. My Little Pony, not so well. <laughs> exactly. so, so your sense is it's a better market. I think it'll be a cleaner market from the perspective of the big yeah. branded uh, toy manufacturers. So I had almost exactly the same take in the sense that the winners are going to be the good brands. And it makes you realize that part of what these toy makers were good at is pushing things through the channel. And that's they bundled right. a bunch of stuff together through the channel. And that's what they were doing. And that no longer works yeah. with Toys R Us. Yeah. It's interesting to think about this is an industry where the flexibility of shelf space obviously matters so much because half of your sales is around the holidays. Mm -hmm. And so it was always difficult for Toys R Us because they have a fixed shelf space. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I think both superstores like Walmart can have much more flexibility because they allocate more shelf space. And then, of course, the internet does that even better. Mm. Right. So in a way, we're just moving mm. towards a more efficient model. Mm. Right? Okay. What about you, Mihir? Did you bring one in? I did. So this kind of dovetails on your Amazon thing. Okay. CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. So in Seattle, Microsoft has now dedicated a large chunk of money, about $500 million, to help address public housing. And of course, public housing and affordable housing is a huge crisis mm -hmm. in cities like Seattle and San Francisco and New York. And so they have taken a really big effort to try to tackle that problem with $500 million, which is no small feat. And then the question is, is this a sign of things to come mm -hmm. where we see CSR and we feel great about it? Or is it in some sense kind of disappointing to see companies try to take the role of the state? So which way do you come down on that, young me? I loved it. I really did. And yeah. what I loved about this was how local it was. Mm -hmm. This is saying, look, this is our community. Homelessness is a problem. And then I also loved how they did it. They created real estate incentives, essentially, to build low-income housing, as opposed to saying, here's a gift. We're just going to give a bunch of money to homeless causes. Right. They actually said, no, we're going to provide an economic nudge and let the market take over. And I thought that was a more thoughtful way to do it. Right. I do think companies, it used to be that if you had a town and you had a big company in it, that big company was the pride of the town. And, and so, they took care of the town. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they were sort of the town benefactor. And now there's this hostility and resentment. And so anything that can rebuild some of those yeah. bridges, I think, are good. What do you think? Fiona? I love that kind of engagement also. I don't know if you've been to Seattle recently. The number of homeless is just really shocking. I think for, obviously, for those who don't have a home, but I think more generally speaking, for everyone living in Seattle, it's a real issue that stares in your face. And in part, I think it's a reflection of what happened in tech and mm -hmm. what happened yeah. with the growth of companies like Amazon and Microsoft. And this basic attitude to we have some responsibility towards the community in which we are located and in which we do business. I think I really loved. Does it now say, oh, now the government is off the hook? No. I think if you really wanted to do something about the affordability crisis in housing, it takes government action. Yeah. But Felix, imagine, for example, in San Francisco, where the homelessness is a crisis, essentially. And imagine if every big tech company located in Silicon Valley, they each put in half a billion yeah. dollars. Yeah. If Google and all of them, Facebook, they all announced, we're all going to create this fund, we're going to do yeah. low-income housing, and we're going to get it together. That would be transformative, I think. So I generally agree with you, which is I think it's fantastic. But just to give you the opposite voice a little bit, I think there's a sense in which this is kind of corporate paternalism. And in general with CSR, I always struggle with this, 
right? Because I love it and I want to see corporations engaged in communities. But there's a sense in which it provides a fig leaf for often for not paying taxes. And so, you know, you have a bunch of corporations out there who are very good at avoiding taxes and then who have massive CSR budgets. And you're asking yourself, well, wait a second, what's what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And that I don't like. But look, on this particular one, yeah. I love it. Yeah. But I think there is something underneath it that's problematic. Okay. Let's do one more round. Yeah. This one number of listeners, particularly listeners from other countries, wanted to know, what is the deal with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? How <laughs> is this person yeah. that we had never heard of before suddenly <laughs> driving all of the headlines yeah. in the country? How can someone so junior have such an outsized influence on the conversation in American politics today. Yeah. So quick take so, on AOC. So, so the first thing just to realize is she's a remarkable person. She's incredibly self-assured. She's incredibly self-confident. She projects that in a really positive way. So she's a special person doing something very special. And second, it's social media and her ability to use social media in a really powerful way. And then the final thing to say is, you know, when you go down to D.C. and you see legislatures, like the average age has been creeping up, right? And so we have like 80-year-old legislators who control a lot of the apparatus in Washington. And it's so refreshing, so refreshing, even if I don't agree with yeah. a bunch of her ideas, to see someone young mm-hmm. there. Yeah. What about you? I agree that the quality of the ideas is really interesting. And what I find refreshing about AOC, it's about the substance of the policy. And then there's policy proposals, how to pay for all of this. But I think it's led with an impact that is sort of an older politics idea where it doesn't feel like she's in the business of mostly talking to her base. She's in the business of pushing through ideas that she really believes in. I think that's really powerful. And then I'll say the, the social media presence, just 2.3 million followers on Instagram. And what I find interesting there, it's this quirky mix yes. of yeah. here's like politics, this is in me in pajamas. So it's a way to create accessibility, and I think. Some humanity. That is, and yeah. some humanity that is really interesting. And so sort of, of course, Every politician always tries to do this, except politicians as a rule are terrible at doing it. And I think she's really quite talented in that respect also. I'll start with that one. Absolute social media ninja. And it's interesting, so many of the generational politicians mastered the medium of the day. So FDR in radio, JFK Mm. in television. Mm. And now you have this, the first politician, I would argue, that has just absolutely mastered it. Some of her clapbacks on Twitter, her Instagram are so fearless, witty, but in a weird way, not malicious. It's hard. They have an edge, but without an anger. And then the final thing I'll say is her ability to immediately make everybody around her seem old and out of touch is (laughs) unbelievable. Everybody around just seems that a little angry slow. generation. Yeah, right? just seems it's a like, little slow, a little late, and everybody's just kind of racing to catch up. Yeah. Um, okay, Felix, you next. So this is close to home. Uh, podcasts. You saw Spotify Podcast. bought Gimlet. Oh yeah. The, the podcast network and producer for more than two hundred million dollars, and apparently it's one in a series of deals. I think it's about five hundred million dollars that they want to spend on on podcasts. What does it say about Spotify? I'll get started on this one, which is I think it's this kind of conversation we've had before, which is the race for content in these platforms. It's a signal of that. We've talked about with Netflix. I think Spotify 
is in music where it's very hard to get into the creation of content. And so podcasts are adjacent. You can get into the creation of content and you can capture some of those rents. One is, I think it's a signal of that. Second is, will it actually provide enough juice to kind of <laughs> drive that economic yeah. engine? I'm kind of deeply skeptical. And then the third take is, are we at like peak podcast? Yeah. You know, like, is yeah, this yeah. like the, are we, are we at like, overpaying, like, overpaying, like this is, feels like the sign when big yeah. corporate behemoths buy uh, startups for uh, really big prices relative to underlying economic fundamentals. It, it feels like maybe we're at peak podcast. <laughs> okay. My takes are, um, so podcasting is not a big business right now. It's a few hundred million dollars, yeah, yeah. but it's in a really primitive stage. So for example, the ad technology for podcasting is really primitive, yeah. but the audience is growing. And what's amazing is how passionate the audience is for it. So I would be really curious to see what Spotify does with it. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine it as thriving as a standalone business. Right. And it feels much more a mechanism to ensure the stickiness of their business. Imagine if you got all your music and all of your podcasts commercial free mm -hmm. from Spotify. <laughs> that feels pretty sticky to me. One of the best acquisitions Amazon ever made was the acquisition of Audible, which wasn't a big acquisition, not necessarily a standalone business, but incredibly sticky and has become a really popular way for people to listen oh, yeah. to books. And they completely dominate the space now. There's really not another yeah. significant player. And so the question is, who's going to kind of bring some order to the world of podcasting right now, it's kind of fragmented and it's all mm -hmm. over the place. So I'll be really curious to see what they do with it. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I think if you look at the economics of podcasts, you roughly need 20,000 listeners plus. The vast majority yeah. of podcasts never get to scale. And so Spotify, with its scale, I think has a really important role to play here and that it can pick really promising types of content and then just expose the most interesting podcasts to many more, to many more people. I think Apple Podcasts has 600,000. It was the latest number I heard. 600,000 podcasts. But doesn't that number, 600,000, also feel like, man, there's a lot of excessive entry? Right, because entry costs are like But it's zero. like music, right? I mean, it feels more like YouTube to me right now, where it's all over the place, and there's no order to it. And you need someone to come along and Netflixify it or do something. <laughs> you know, do. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Okay, we have time for one more. So better be good, Mahir. Which well, was? It's, I don't know if it's good. It's going to be silly. Marie Kondo. <laughs> Not silly at all. <laughs> the short version is Marie Kondo. Is she a... A complete tyrant about the way you run your home or is she a domestic uh, diva second what does she have that speaks to so many people why is she so popular I, my short answer is folding <laughs> techniques. <laughs> so what I find particularly interesting is so many of the facets are completely infused with Japanese yes. culture and practices. The part that I love best about this particular approach is, is the question when she asks you if you decide to keep something or get rid of something is you ask yourself does this item does this product spark joy and I think that's such a powerful question yeah. so I think her approach to just ask like does it make you happy does it spark joy I think yeah. I think is actually really powerful yeah my quick take is I was totally skeptical when I read the book and I just fell in love with it I, oh, think she, I think she's brilliant. Are I you folding she, towels? No, I mean, it's, well, it continues to be aspirational for me. <laughs> it is. But, well, but it, I just think it's fantastic. The question she poses is yeah. fantastic. Her whole thought process, and it's it's more about things, right? It's it's about, I think, also spirituality to some degree, right? About how all this clutter in our lives 
changes our inner being. So I don't know. I was, this is the kind of thing that I would, when I saw it first, I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and then I read the book and I was like, oh, by the way, the Netflix series, I'm not so sure about, but the book is like amazing. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a convert. You guys have a really good recommendation for you. Okay. So have you seen the Andy Warhol exhibition at the Whitney? No, I have not. You have to go. You have to go. It's good? It is amazing. It's huge. There are, I think, 300 works. Wow. It's Ah. the biggest, I think it might even be the first retrospective in 30 plus years. And Andy Warhol, he's, he's arguably one of the most important artists of the second half of the 20th century. And the way he imagined the intrusion of art into popular culture and popular commerce and vice versa. Vice versa, yeah was really pretty stunning, and it's all there in the exhibit. His silk screens, his portraits, his early graphic art. Hmm. And as you walk through it, you just get a sense of how much he's influenced how we think about celebrity and fame and the business of art and the artistic persona. You really should check it out. It's in New York, I think, throughout the spring, and then it's heading to San Francisco over the summer, and then it will be in Chicago in the fall. Okay. So check it wow. out. Yeah. Okay. That's a fantastic Good. suggestion. Yeah. I, have a, I have a suggestion. Um, I love documentaries. Okay. There are so many I could pitch. But the one I'm going to pitch is Minding the Gap, which is on Hulu. And is also, I think, going to win the Oscar. It Wait, a, you get Hulu and you get Netflix? I, actually, you know what? I signed up for Hulu for the purpose of watching Minding the Gap. And then you unsubscribed afterwards? I'm, I'm, I'm on the verge of doing that. <laughs> Sometime in the future. <laughs> Minding the Gap is spectacular. It's a first-time documentary for a 23-year-old kid. And it's about three young men who are skateboarders. And it starts out as being kind of about skateboarding culture. But then it becomes this really riveting examination of violence in young men's lives and how it shapes the way young men think about the world. And it's just spectacular. And these three young men, they kind of go from boys to men, which is also one of the nice things in the documentary is to to talk about what goes wrong mm. at that age and uh, why it goes wrong. Yeah. But it becomes like this really deep, riveting, mm. really fantastic documentary. So Minding the Gap on Hulu. Oh, sounds good. How about you? Uh, I have a series that I would like to recommend, a series by a uh, journalist, a reporter called uh, Kashmir Hill, and her ambition is to cut one of the five big tech companies out of her life completely. Hmm. So let me try for a week to not touch Google in any way. And oh my God, you have no idea how many touch points there are to begin with. I'll just give you these uh, two (laughs) quick examples from the Google. So she cuts out Google. So then her web pages don't load or load very slowly. Like she's thinking, oh my God, what is happening here? I'm, and of course, it's because so many web pages use Google fonts. That's then nice. she goes, okay, so, you know, I have a meeting, try to go use Uber. Actually, there is no Uber because the map for Uber is Google Maps and so on and so <laughs> That's on. Great. And so, so the whole series, Cashmere Hill, uh, you, will, you will find it if you... If you Google it, uh, <laughs> for Gizmodo Media, okay. Life Without the Big Five. Oh, wow. That sounds... That sounds great. Yeah. Also strange, but yes, <laughs> really good. Okay. Thanks, guys. I will see you all next week. Sounds great. Bye. See you soon.